brought your Bibles, I hope. If you didn't, grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. We're going to be in Esther tonight, but I want to take a quick little detour on our way there. Um, First Chronicles chapter 21. Today, some pretty important news happened. Um, yeah, amen. Amen. But it's interesting because I don't, know how, I don't know where you get your news from, but it's almost like everybody, when you read the, high, the, the, the um, headlines, it, the way they're represented, it is completely wrong. I, I, I've even read it where it says, you know, Israel, you know, uh, or Jerusalem becomes Israel's capital. Guys, Jerusalem has always been Israel's capital since David's time. And that's where I want to, I guess I want to get to it right today. If, if you just turn with me real quickly, First Chronicles 21, like, we're going to get to Esther. So we're on our way there. That's like, I don't know, three quarters of the way there. David, David, King David had a census taken, sinned against the Lord with that. The angel then came and, and God gave David, the, the choice as to the punishment that would be received. And I don't want to go through all of that. Bottom line, this angel was moving through, and, and David sees this, and, and he's gonna, he calls out, we're going to have a, he's going to have a, uh, an altar built and a sacrifice made. But he, in, at the end of this, in the end of the chapter, and you can read it yourself to get to this point, but bottom line, he goes to this man named Ornan, and he buys the threshing floor. And he said, if you, verse 22, then David said to Ornan, give me the site of this threshing floor that I may build on it and alter the Lord for the full price you shall give it to me that the plague may be restrained from the people. Ornan said to David, take it for yourself. Let the Lord, the king, do what is good in his sight. Ornan saw the angel, said, do whatever, just take it. See, I will, I'll give you the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges for the wood, the wheat, and the grain offering. I'll give it all to you, just whatever you gotta do. But David says this in verse 24, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord or a burnt offering, which costs me nothing. So, verse 25, David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. That's important because in 2 Chronicles 3.1, it tells us that on that very site was built the temple. And here's the bill of sale. And it has never been sold. Israel, Jerusalem, since the time of David and here the temple has always been the capital of Israel. Today, what took place is the United States finally recognized officially that Jerusalem is the capital and is going to move the embassy there. Praise the Lord. Amen. I, and by the way, that was voted and approved, what, 20 some years ago? By a vote of, I believe it was 94 to 6 in the Senate. All of those that are saying, oh, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, voted for it. <laughs> just finally, we have a president that stood up and said, we're going to do what we said we're going to do and, and just recognize that. So I do, it is an important thing that took place today, though, because I do believe that this is, we talked about this even praying on Sunday night. There's a lot that's going on in the world right now and a lot that's going on in the Middle East and we need to, that this should be as Christians, this should be uh, stirring in our hearts, giving us a sense of urgency. I believe the time is rapidly approaching, the time when we're gonna hear the trumpet blast, guys, and we're out of here, but we got a lot of work to do in between now and then when that happens. It could happen tonight, though, maybe. 
even before we're done. Wouldn't that be cool? But anyway, I say all of that to, to point out this. It's a significant thing that happened today, yes. But bottom line, God has always been intervening on behalf of his people. And I, I, I think it kind of builds into where we're going. So you can turn to Esther. That's where we're going we're gonna to begin our study in Esther tonight. After we, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you're in Job or Psalms, you've gone too far. Interesting when we look at this, the story of, of Esther. We mentioned this when we were going through our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. The story of Esther falls actually between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. There's a 70-some-odd year period there, and that's where Esther fits chronologically. And as we look at the, the, this story, a couple of things are maybe not as a parent, jump right off the page at you, but if you study it as we're going to, you're going to recognize that God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. Prayer is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. So why is the book of Esther in the Bible? Well, we're going to see very clearly that though God's not mentioned anywhere in Esther, his fingerprints are all over the story of Esther. God's sovereign, providential hand, protecting, guiding, leading, moving, protecting, watching over his, his people, his children, Israel. And we see that throughout history, right? I mean, what we talked about even at the beginning, um, in the beginning of the book of Ezra, we're going to be introduced in verse 1, um, Ahasuerus, the king, his grandpa was Cyrus. Remember, if you were here during our study of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, a decree, Cyrus gives a decree to send the, the, a group of, of, of the children of Israel to, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to do that work. And that was prophesied hundreds of years beforehand. Cyrus was called out by name. We looked at that in depth when we were going through that part. But God prophesied by name that Cyrus, a man named Cyrus, way before he was born, was going to, was going to give a decree that it was that, to send the children back, to rebuild. I mean, God is in control of all of these things, providentially his hand. And I, I think it's kind of interesting just as we're going through this now in, on the weekends in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, it says, and we know, right, 828, that God works all things together for good through those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And we know that God works all things together for good, even if we don't see it, right? <laughs> even if we don't feel it at times, even if there's times in our walk and in our lives where we don't necessarily feel or see God's hand working, we know, because his word says so, that it is. So I think that's kind of interesting as we're going to see in Esther. We don't see him mentioned anywhere, but we know, as we're going to be moving through this, that his hand is definitely on this. We're going we're gonna to be introduced to a guy named Haman, not tonight probably, but as we move through, and, and no doubt this man... I believe possessed satanic forces at work because he had a his goal was to wipe out the Jewish people, to completely wipe them out. He's not alone in history, right? I mean, that's we've seen this throughout history. But guess who ends up on the losing side of that battle every single time? <laughs> because the sovereign hand of God is on 
the children of Israel. And it's not because they've earned it, right? Just like you and I as Christians, we didn't earn anything. We've been extended grace and extended mercy. But we're going to see as we move through the story of Esther's God's handprint everywhere. I loved this um, this quote or this way of referring to God's providential hand because we, we realize that, we recognize it again maybe in our heads and we're reading through the Bible, okay, I get it, but you know, God, you know, he, his, I could see his hand maybe here or in there, but what about in my life? You know, the individual things in my life, how could that be? And I love this, this is really cool, I, I like these little things to help you remember, but a definition for God's providential hand is God's attention concentrated everywhere. And again, that blows our mind, right? Because if we're going to concentrate on something, it gets really, really narrow. And it's really, really tight. No, God's, con- God's concentrated everywhere, his focus. And it can be because it's infinite. So if, if he's got an infinite amount focused on me, how much is left for you? <laughs> an infinite amount. Anyway, that'll blow, let, let that blow your mind later. Okay, so Esther. As I mentioned, we're introduced to this man, Ahasuerus. Uh, Cyrus is his grandfather. We're introduced to him, first part of Ezra. Later on in the book of Ezra, we're introduced to his father, Darius. He's mentioned a couple of times, I believe, in chapters five and six um, in, in, there, in that range um, in Ezra. But his son is the one that we've been talking about when we're in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah Artaxerxes. So we've, we've been introduced to, to his family. Now we're going to meet this guy. It, it, history records his name also as Xerxes. Here in Esther is Ahasuerus. Chapter 1 of Esther, now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. That Ahasuerus, just in case there was another one you're confusing him with. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army of officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. Now, before we get to looking at this, this party that he's throwing, he, draws, he gets this banquet. It's in the third year, early on in his reign. Now, his, his father, Darius, in his reign, he tried to expand the Medo-Persian empire that we're looking at here, even outside of the borders that, it, that he had, going into, into Greece, trying to, 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 bat, to extend the kingdom in there, but he lost his father. He didn't lose ground, but he tried to keep expanding the kingdom, lost. And so he was trying to rebuild the army and and refocus his efforts to go to try to back to do that when he died. Now, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is the king, and he's trying to muster this up to and go back in, same thing. But now he's established now as the king. At this point, and I had a map that I forgot to send to the media team to put up for, but you can Google it to see it, but it's massive when you think. For, it stretches all the way from the border of India, if you're thinking of a map, all the way over to the northern part of Africa. That entire area is now under his control. Huge area, and he's king of all of this. So he has this banquet, this big, huge party, and he's inviting all of the princes from all of the different areas to come and to see. And 
it tells us in verse four that he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days, six months. That's a, that's a big party. That is a big ego. But it's this king that, that he's like, I have to put on display all that I have and let everybody see and let everybody be impressed. And no doubt there was probably along with that this idea that, hey, we're going to muster up and we're going to build up this bigger army. We're going to get, hey, we're, let's get everybody fired up because we're going to go back and try to conquer the, the Grecian Empire again. But we see in this, no doubt, a bunch of pride, the focus of man on what I can accumulate, the power, the possessions, showing it off. But guess what? Ahasuerus is going to die. He's going to actually be executed. He's going to be murdered by one of his own people and his son, Artaxerxes, will take the throne. But when he died, what happened to all of his stuff? Somebody else got it. And the focus on, and the the world can get so focused in on how do I accumulate more stuff and how do I get more, more of my own things here? You know, and that's what the world tries to tell us all the time. Keep your finger here and turn with me real quickly to Ephesians. I want you to see this in your own Bible and you can keep your finger in Ephesians because we're gonna go back a couple of times. Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. Because it is pretty impressive that you got that much stuff that it takes you six months to show it off, right? I mean, that's pretty impressive. Ephesians chapter two, Paul's talking again about, starts off, we, are, we were dead in our uh, trespasses and sins, which we formerly walked. Um, verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse seven, here's where we're going, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Guys, what God has in store for us is gonna take eternity to show it to us. That is what is ours ahead. And Peter tells us when we, when in, in, in Peter's letters that it can't be destroyed. It can't be taken away. It is ours. It's a possession for ours. But I just, I love that, that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Guys, I don't know about you, but... The world can keep what it has. <laughs> when, when this is what's waiting for us, well, tells us that this goes on, and, and no doubt it, it, it's coming in waves as people are coming. That's why it took six months. But again, this big show of everything that he's got. And when that was all done, when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in, the Suze, in, in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So he throws this big party of all of his main guys from all around. They, they're there. 
There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of uh, porphyry or whatever that is. It's probably expensive, I'm just guessing. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and that's interesting, of various kinds. That means that no two were the same. So all of the, the drinks, and, it's, and we, we find out this is the, the alcohol, the wine is flowing, and everybody has their own gold vessel that's different than everybody else's. It's not like the party, you know, when you have a picnic and you give everybody a plastic Dixie cup and you have to write your initial on it so you know which one is yours. This is, yeah, you got your own gold vessel. When you put it down over there, you know it's yours because no, no other ones are the same as that one. The royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion for so, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of his own person. We're going to see in verse 10 when we get there in just a moment. Well, actually, verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So a few things that we know about these, this party, we see in verse 10 that he marry with wine. It's a, it's a heavy drinking party. Um, the king gets, is, is pretty drunk in verse 10. And it's just men that are there. Just a bunch of guys sitting around getting drunk. The women are having their own gathering in another, another building, another part of the palace. Interesting that it says that there was no compulsion, given the orders. You know, basically what it's saying is you don't have to drink if you don't want to. You know, this, you're not under no compulsion to drink. But no doubt, just as anything in, along in those lines, the peer pressure that's going on, everybody else is. So no doubt that this was pretty much everybody that's drinking here. And it gets out of hand. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bishtha, Hardaman, Bigtha, Agabatha, Sheritha, and Carcass. Carcass, interesting. I guess it's a dead man's party. Okay. I, you know what? That was one of those I said, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Nobody's, there's nobody here from the 80s that would get that told dead man's party joke. Anyway, okay. I shouldn't have done it. Anyway, can't take it back, though. The se anyway, the seven eunuchs, that's seven guys, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So here's what's happening. The king's drunk, full of a room full of drunk guys. And he says, you know what? I've shown you everything except my wife. Let me bring her out and display her in front of you. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Don't know, but we can sure kind of 
draw some things together. That you know, would he have would he have acted this way if he was sober? Would it, a room full of guys and all of this kind of stuff? We don't know, but we do know that you get he's he has this party that's going on, a lot of drinking. He's drunk and he's going to bring his wife out and parade her in front of a bunch of other drunk men. And some commentators, some scholars believe that when it says that he was going to bring her out with her crown is that's all she was supposed to be wearing. Now, regardless, bottom line, and I'm not going to get off on a big tangent with this, but I get asked this all the time, okay? Is it a sin for a Christian to drink? Is it a sin for a Christian to have, to, to, to drink alcohol? And the bottom line is the answer is no. It is a sin to become drunk, the sin to be under the influence of alcohol. The Bible also said it's a, it's a sin to cause, that, that to cause another man, another person to stumble in their walk. And bottom line, being someone who has had in, in my past times when I spent several, several years in the party scene and doing all of that kind of stuff. And I look back on it and I can't tell you one, one thing that I could say, you know what? That was a positive aspect of that. Not one. There is not one bit of quote unquote fun that I had then that I miss. Never, never touching alcohol again. And to run the risk of causing someone else to stumble is it just is it, is, it, is it worth it at all for me? So again, is it a sin? No, but my question would be why? Why? I mean, I, because, I, because I enjoy the taste. Okay. A lot of things I enjoy the taste of that I've chosen not to, <laughs> not, not, to, not to have, you know, and we'd look at those types of things, especially when we're trying to take care of ourselves and, and all of that. And bottom line, why would we when taking these steps, I mean, look at what it is. And the enemy is the one that's going to try to convince you, yeah, you're okay. You're still not under the influence yet. One more is all right. And it's, it's, th- this, this isn't pastor speak here. This is proven fact that that we, our inhibitions start declining immediately as we're drinking. All of a sudden, things that we wouldn't, we wouldn't give a second thought to all of a sudden are entertained a little bit more. And again, before, before you know it, you're sucked right into it. And I go back to the point that I was kind of touching on earlier. The king said, hey, you don't have to if you don't want to. But I can almost guarantee you there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of them that were in that room that weren't just like the king. You get kind of sucked in and drawn into that. Well, bottom line, good for Queen Vashti. Say, no way. Although, as we're going to find out, it's not a real good thing to say no to the king. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before, so to speak, before all who knew the law and justice, and we're close to him, and here we have another list of names, seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? 
In the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. King, you got to deal with this, because if I get home and you don't, my wife's going to talk to me the same way. And I don't know how to handle that. So you're going to have to fix this. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media. So it cannot be repealed that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of the king of Ahasuerus. The, king of, the presence of King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he made, is heard throughout all this land, all his kingdom, great as it is, all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. So he sent a letter to all the king's provinces to teach to each province according to its script and to every people according to their language that every man should be the master of his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So sending out an edict saying, wives, if you talk back to your husbands, you get expelled. So man in charge of the house. Now, I told you to stay in Ephesians. Chapter 5. How many of you knew I was going there? Ephesians chapter 5. Because the Bible does tell us that there is an order of things in a marriage, in the home. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Now, that word subject does not mean slave. It does not mean of any less value. It literally means to place under in an orderly fashion. And it's not punishment. It's God's design for the perfect marriage. Guess what? He invented it. He is the one who created marriage and gave it as a gift to man and woman. And he said, this is the design that I, that I have for it. So to the woman to be subject to her husband. Now, is that that edict then that we just leave it right there? Well, I'll tell you, and this is the way I've, I've looked at it, and this way, guys, our part's next. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So also husbands ought to love their, their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, loves his own wife, loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And how does that look? Well, first of all, it's unconditional. 
Christ loving the church, as we spoke of before, it's not in reciprocation. It tells us that we love because he first loved us. Christ didn't love us in reciprocation to our love to him. It's unconditional, but it's, it's our love. It is his love is first. And again, it's, he didn't love us when we were good. So our love towards our wives is, is not when they've earned it. You know, again, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrificially. He gave himself up for us as the church. And guys, we need to give ourselves up for our wives. What takes place in Esther chapter one, I mean, I, is the opposite of that. Parading, you know, my trophy wife showing off whatever, giving ourselves up. We're to, be, we're to be the protectors. We're to be the guardians. We're to be the ones that make sure nothing like that could ever possibly happen. Sacrificially, actively, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Guys, when was the last time you washed your wife in the word? I hope that it is regularly throughout the week that you are having Bible study together, that you're reading the word together, that you're praying together. As the leader in the home, that's your responsibility, guys, that you are doing that actively in your home. I've done not a lot, but I've done quite a bit of of marriage counseling and having discussions, especially with, with with guys, not necessarily even as couples sometimes, but just guys coming up to me. And one thing that I've heard several times from men is, you know what, pastor, she's just not the same woman I married. And my response is, bro, guess what's different? You. Because before she was married, it wasn't you. <laughs> so if there's, if there's a problem since then, that's your fault. You are the one that is to be washing her and praying over her and protecting her and guarding her and actively, you know, being involved in that. And then gently and patiently, 1 Peter 3, 7, live in an understanding way. Guys, you need to understand that your wife is different than you are. And that is a good thing. It's a really good thing. We so often try to put unfair expectations on each other. And bottom line, coming back to the point I wanted to make with this, because I look at this and it's, it's, it's laughable. King, you got to fix this. We got to make a law. We got to make sure that the women obey us and never talk back to us and submit to us and blah, 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 blah. And again, so many times in, in marriage counseling, She's not submitting. Well, I can tell you what, guys, if you love your wives as Christ loved the church, if you are unconditionally, sacrificially, actively, gently loving your wife every day, I have never met a woman that won't submit to a man like that. Never have. And that's, that's our responsibility. That's our role. We don't need to pass any laws. <laughs> we just need to do what we're supposed to do. Love our wives as Christ loved the church. 
Well, chapter 2, back in Esther, after these things, approximately three years passed by. We're going to see that a little bit later that we've jumped ahead in Ahasuerus's reign. Approximately three years. During this three-year period, he went back out to attack Greece. And he has some initial success, but he, eventually they lose, and they come back again without advancing any further the territory. And that will be their last attempt at doing that. But after these things, he comes back. He's been gone for a couple of years. When the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his, of, of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had, taken, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Je Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So the king realizes, I've sent my wife away, need to have a queen, kind of wondering how I fix this. And so the, it was brought up that we're going to go around and we're going to find virgin girls from around the kingdom and we're going to bring them in and basically as we're going to see the king is going to spend a night with 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 them one at a time and until he finds one that he likes and that's the one that he's going to choose as king the rest then go into this harem of concubines that the king has we're introduced here to a man named Mordecai he's going to play a major role in the rest of the story and his cousin, Esther. Now, he's substantially quite a bit older than Esther. Um, it's his, his uncle's daughter. Both her parents had passed away, and he had agreed to take her and raise her basically as his own daughter. So we're introduced to them in this process. It came about, verse 8, when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai. Now, notice, they were gathered I know that you've probably seen movies about Esther and it sounds like this big glamorous beauty pageant that all of the girls were like, oh, I can't wait. Oh, you know, oh, pick me, pick me, you know, kind of thing. It wasn't like that. They were taken, most of them, no doubt, by force and brought into this situation. And like I said, they, they got one night, one night with the king. If they, they weren't picked, they go off into this harem, and it's not like they could then be married to somebody else. No, they literally became widows unless he ever chose to bring them back in again. They just lived in this harem as, as concubines the rest of the time. 
gathered to the citadel into the custody of Haggai that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. That is Esther pleasing Haggai, the one who was overseeing all of them and kind of making sure everything was ready so that when the king went, this, this whole process began, that it was the way the king expected it. So he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So she finds favor with him, but that's, again, we see God's providential hand already moving in this whole process. Because God has plans for Esther and for his children, the, the children of Israel through this whole process. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So she didn't tell anyone that she was a Jew. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. So he's, he's, he's obviously worried, concerned for her, but he has a close, he's close by getting information about things. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulation for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Interesting plan that they had, but 12 months getting ready for their one night with the king. The young lady would go into the king in his way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shashgaz. Anybody looking for a name for their child? There's a possibility. Shashgaz, <laughs> the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in again to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So chances are, this is just one after another. It could have been, we don't know, but hundreds probably that end up then in this, in this harem. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised, which again is smart. Hey, you tell me. You know what the king likes. You, you know his preferences. So she just did exactly what he said, and Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which was in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So here we see the time change, the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time when Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Esther had not yet made known to her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. So here we see in verse 19, 
Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate. Probably now, this is a few months later, at least a little while later, because now probably because of Esther's now influence or suggestion, Mordecai is now given this, this position of greater authority, sitting in the king's gate. That means that he has some type of, of position or, or a little bit more power. He was Before, it just seemed like he had access. Now he's in the king's gate, so he's got more access. And again, here we see God's hand moving even more to put him into this position, as we will read now in verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's day, gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from whom who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, to lay hands on him, that was not to pray for him. That was to kill him. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on the gallows and it, was written, and, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. So Mordecai is sitting in the gate now, strategically here, and he hears, overhears two of the king's very close guards talking about that they're going to kill the king. They're planning on killing the king. They're upset about something, whatever it might be, passed over for a promotion, who knows. But they're going to plan on killing the king. He goes to Esther. He says, you have to warn the king about this. And so he does, and it's investigated, found out that it's true, they have them executed. Now, you would think that the king would say, man, thank you, big special thing, nothing's mentioned here. We're gonna, we're gonna stop here tonight because chapters one and two really, and part of the whole point of going through it like we did tonight, is it's setting up the rest of the story. How did Esther become queen? How did a Jew become a queen in Persia? And so now we know the answer to that story, that, that question. And the fact that Mordecai tipped him off about this assassination attempt is going to become a big deal later on in our story. So we have it all set up. Now, we're going to be introduced to the, the, the villain of the story in chapter 3 and, and so forth. And I encourage you to read ahead, and we'll pick up in chapter 3 next time. But now we have the, the setting as we'll continue to move through to the Lord Terry. Let's pray. Lord, we do... Thank you and praise you for the fact that you preserved your holy living word and have given it to us. Because, Lord, every time, in every page, even though as we've discussed, your, you are not even mentioned in the story of Esther, yet we see your fingerprints already in just the first couple of chapters of how you're moving and you're, you're controlling situations, moving pieces into place so that your will is done your providential hand, your, your power on display on every page. Lord, we, we do thank you for the fact that we can, we can trust in that. We can know, as your word tells us, we know that you work all things together for good. And Lord, we, we live in amazing times, times that we see even prophecy, all of the pieces being moved into place for your prophetic word to continue to be proven 100% accurate. Lord, we do pray for the peace of, of Jerusalem, 
in this time, no doubt. There are many, many people who are against the decision that was made today that is the right decision. Lord, your word says you will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. So we're simply acknowledging the fact that, Lord, you gave Israel Jerusalem. It's theirs. No one can take it away. We're, we as a people, as a country, simply acknowledge that. And so um, we ask that you would bless Israel, that you would give peace in Jerusalem. Watch over your people. Lord, we thank you that we know that we can, again, we can know that you are watching over us as your people as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of the week. We'll all see you Saturday for the real Christmas surprise. Mm -hmm.